Welcome to In Bed with the Films We Love. I'm Talia Ripley. And I'm Ethan Crane. And today we're talking about Stanley Kubrick's 1968 film, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is Ethan's choice. It is my choice, yes. Yep. So tell me about the history of this film and you. So I can't actually remember the first time I watched this film. I can remember the second and third times, but the first time must have been sometime in my late teens or maybe early 20s. I think I watched it at home probably before I left home, but that's the first time I watched it. I don't remember particularly don't remember thinking, oh, that's a film that's going to be one okay. of my favourites sort yeah. of thing for the rest of my life. Um, I just remember being mightily confused, to be honest. Sure. Yeah. But I was very intrigued by it because it was a very different sort of film from the films I was used to seeing. You know, it's, it's obviously it has long, long shots in it that it's, it is not. I mean, I think you mentioned one of the other podcasts, sort of the opposite of what was that? you mentioned, Armageddon. It is okay. not Armageddon. It's a space movie that is not Armageddon in yep. any sense whatsoever. That's yeah. true. So I watched it again, um, I think possibly whilst I was at university. And I started to, I became just very, I, the, I was just really blown away in how confused and bewildered I was by the, the final scene, basically going into the Stargate and, um, and the scenes at the end where Dave is in the very sort of, um, you know, beautiful room, beautifully lit yeah. room kind of thing, mm -hmm. and he sees these different age cells of his. And I just could not work out what Stanley Kubrick was trying to say with this film. But I did know, I did find out at the time that um, uh, Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke had not only written the screenplay together, but they'd also written the novel at the same time. Actually, it was more Kubrick wrote the screenplay and then Arthur C. Clarke wrote the novel at the same time when they were pretty much published the book was published about the same time as the film came out. I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. I'll I'll try and get hold of the novel. And I did. And that's when I truly started to love this film, like after mm. I read the novel, because although the film is meant to, you know, Stanley Kubrick has said himself, like it's how he, um, he doesn't want it to be obvious what's going on. He wants it to be a very subjective film experience. He wants people to take what they will out of this about the evolution of mankind and what mm. he's trying to say. Nevertheless, despite that, and I, I admire that as a sort of style of filmmaking. I didn't mind that he didn't, but actually when you read like what Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke meant for what the Stargate and the final scene, I, that really blew my mind. And I really sort of thought, oh my God, this is incredible. And then having read the, the novel, when I was in my mid twenties, uh, yeah, mid twenties, uh, mid to late twenties, I was living in, living in a house share in London and I persuaded my housemate at the time to watch 2001 Space Odyssey whilst we took acid. Mm -hmm. And that was what really cemented it for me. Because watching, watching 2001 uh, on acid really somehow made me fully get into this whole idea about the evolution of man. And with all the background knowledge of what I read in the, in the novel as well. And... I mean, I'm really intrigued when other people watch it, how they feel about it, like not knowing sort of all the, the storyline that's meant to be that they were intending to come from the okay. novel. Yeah. So, so I can fill you in on that, if you like. So <laughs> I, my history of the film is kind of pretty much through you. Because okay. I, I, obviously I remember it as a child, maybe my older brother's talking about it a bit. 
Um, and, and of course, there's so many scenes that are a little bit just endemic in cultural, um, you yeah. know, cultural references to things. So you kind of know some of the language of, of the film before you see it anyway. Yeah. Um, Which bits would those be that you know as someone who hasn't seen it as much as I have maybe? Well, the bit with the monolith. Yeah. So the monolith is like, oh yeah, there's something about apes and monoliths and the monoliths yeah, yeah. and it's all about... So you have a vague, I had a vague sense probably that it's about a, aliens coming down and, you know, sort of talking to mankind and giving us information or, you know, blah, bloody blah, blah. Tools are terrible. Um, that, that kind of... Oh, sorry, tools, tools, tools terrible. terrible. Tools are not terrible. Tools are the progress, but tools are also the, you know, violence, violence, violence and yeah. everything like that. So you're talking, you're talking here about how the 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 main ape in the first scene learns to use a yeah, yeah a bow yeah, and yeah, as a yeah. weapon. Yep, 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 yep. But anyway, so there's a kind of vague sense of knowing it, but I know you really loved it, and I think the first time I actually saw it was now I could be really wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure I got you tickets. To see it at the IMAX, because I'm on the IMAX, on yeah. your birthday. And your birthday's in June. And I think it was the year that I had our eldest child who was born in August. So my memory of is being really tired and in a really hot cinema. It was such a hot day. We watched just that. like blasting, you know, an IMAX is so really intense. all intense. Yeah. And we're seeing it in London. We had to get the train back home. And I was worried about missing the last train. And you were pregnant at the time, so that was in yeah. 2002 then. Yeah, I think yeah, so. Right. Okay. And um, I didn't I didn't mind it, actually. I mean, some bits, obviously, especially in the IMAX cinema, are quite something. But I didn't particularly, you know, it didn't grab me particularly. Yeah. And then I watched it last night, and, yeah. and that cemented my feelings about it. But we'll talk about that a bit yeah. more later. Anyway. So my, my just carries finish of my history my history obviously you bought me a ticket to see it and uh -huh. i my memory is that's in 2001 and i think that's why they showed it because it was in 2001 i think but never mind 2001 2002 doesn't matter yeah. it makes the stories better if i'm sufferingly heavily pregnant okay it? but yes, that doesn't mean it's true <laughs> <laughs> but then i also watched it again with our son who um really loved it and it became one of his favorite films i think that was last year and then we watched it again last night yeah mm, okay, okay yeah um so and uh, yeah we will talk about this more later but my two exp two last experiences watching it watching it with our son and then watching it with you were very different experiences of okay. watching the film okay. <laughs> so okay so tell That's me a, yeah again really but tell me what gets you about this film why is it that you, you love? okay so i guess i guess the main my main overriding like love this film is it's just sense of ambition in some ways uh -huh. like if you think about the time in which it was made in made in 1968 made before man had landed on the moon mm. and before we had any sort of like star wars you know 10 years before star wars or anything like that and before this space movies had essentially been war movies really fighting aliens or whatever and here comes mm. this film that I mean, it's not only is it not only is it about not about war it's about the beauty of space in some ways and and the the way it's set to the music is just like i mean it's become it's become so iconic that it's almost feels cliched now to watch it but the yeah the whole the movement like the the like so one of the iconic scenes of the tossing the bone in the air and it moving to the to the spaceship um you know jumping forward in thousands of years to the spaceship 
and then that whole very long docking of the spaceship to the Blue Danube, isn't it? I think it's yeah. is the music. Every time I see that, um, I just can't get over just how perfect it seems, the, the marrying of that music and the, the beauty of the images. And I, and I can't help but be in awe of Kubrick for the ambition of doing that at the time. I mean, he spent so long trying to do those effects kind of thing mm. in, a, in an era where the effects were not very easy to do at all. I yeah. mean, it's yeah. something that I did find it certainly very beautiful. Um, the, the, it looks amazing for 1968. It yeah. seems absurd that it was then when, you know, obviously there's a few shots of the spaceship going through um, you know, through space and you can compare it to some of the classic shots in Star Wars, you know, yeah. and effects wise, it's maybe not quite as good as some no. of Star Wars, yeah. but it's 10 years before Star Wars. It's 10 Wars. years before. <laughs> yeah. And some of the interiors um, it, within the spaceship um, are really, I, th I think he used a particularly high caliber camera. Is that it's right? 70 millimeter. Yeah. Yeah. Something that it does even, and I'm not amazing projector. It did. It did really stand out and look particularly beautiful. He's just. I think Kubrick is just very good at his use of lighting and color and everything as well, isn't he? Like even in some of the le the less less obvious shots, like when um, Dave's in the pod trying to rescue um, mm. rescue the, the other guy, and the reason I can't remember his name is also significant because the characters are so insignificant in Kubrick films in some ways. Yeah, but. Um, uh, and all the, the panel lights or whatever, and you think, I bet he thought about that for a long time and how the lighting was, and that the way the light, the lights of the panels show up on his a spacesuit helmet and things as well. That's quite a classic shot, isn't there? With yeah. him, with the space, when he's got a helmet on. I'm not sure if that's, because when he's gone out to get his, his mate, whatever, yeah. he doesn't have a helmet on. Floyd. So. Yeah. yeah. But... Yeah, I mean, it, it does look brilliant there. I love that the yellow lighting of of, of the displays or, or you know the things around him yeah. lit up on him. And then it's and then we have the the uh, amazingness of the, the sets that he built for it. I mean, um, you didn't come, but Ellie and I went to the Kubrick exhibition in London last year, and they had the the you know sections of the um, the interior of that first first spaceship that they're in when. Um, you know, the, the circular, such that they're, that Dave's jogging round. Yeah. And I mean, that cost three quarters of a million pounds to build. And Kubrick just said, I'm building it basically. And like, and everyone thought he was absolutely insane to be building these things, but it's, it's quite incredible thing to, that the, you know, the, the ideas of having, of moving the camera around as, as, and I, I feel it, it does give you a sense of what the anti-gravity is like in a way. That's like, and and same with the. I mean, one of my favourites is the the shot of the the um, air stewardess like turning around upside down. Yeah. And you think and you think about it and you think, oh yeah, of course I can see how they do this. You just turn the camera around at the same time, isn't it? But it doesn't really matter. It's just yeah. It's just really a really good uh -huh. effect. I mean, you think of all the people who must have learned from that, like Christopher Nolan in Inception and. Yeah, and all these sort of people influenced by those those kind of shots, and and I'm just I mean I have my I have as I speak about later I have my you know my slight reservations about Kubrick now that I wouldn't have had a few years ago, um, but I can't help but admire his ambition in in doing the in, in doing these kind of things. 
Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. Not you. As I may have intimated, I didn't. I didn't love the film, and yeah. you probably noticed when we were watching as well. Um, but just to pick up on so a couple of your points, the one thing I I had suspected that possibly one of the first times you watched it had been a drug fueled no um, thing, but it wasn't. No. Okay, so that's fair enough. Um, but did you feel that watching it? Because I could imagine that being sort of just you know in some way having your your perceptions altered yeah. could have made that much more enjoyable thing. I'd have loved something to contort time, to be honest. <laughs> um, well, well, you see, this this is actually the next point I was going to come on to about my love of it in a way, and is that the film has such a meditative quality to it. I think mm. it's but. But, and it's a really big but, it does really depend, and I think this could go, could go for a lot of films, it makes such a difference who you're watching it with in some ways. And this isn't in no way, in no way trying to, trying to um, discredit, you know, your subjective enjoyment of the film, but it just really made me realise, it made me, made me think that like, when I, like I said, when I watched it with our son last year, he was really enjoying it. And I was really enjoying it as well, being in the room with someone who was really enjoying it. And you're just basically, you're just letting, wash, letting these images wash over you. But if you're, and maybe this goes for any kind of art in a way, and I think possibly it's true. I was really thinking about it last night. If you're watching it, watching a film with someone who is not enjoying it as much as you are, it affects your enjoyment. I think that goes for anything. Any, yeah, anything, you anything. know, yeah. of a grade or highbrow, lowbrow, really. Yeah. But maybe it's more intense than something that's can easily be uh, questioned. You know, it's obvious, you know, that y- you could think some of those long yeah. shots are, you know, the, the question is your mind could be, is this needed? Is this necessary? Yes, is I this? mean... And if you if you yeah. have that, then you've lost your meditative state and then you're not enjoying it, I guess. Yeah. I really don't want to be that down on it because obviously many people do love it. I think... I thought the first time I watched it, I just thought perhaps I'm not in the right state. You know, perhaps it was just the heat of the cinema. Perhaps it was something like that. I need to watch this in a better mood. Um, That may still be true, but I don't, I probably am not actually going to give it another go. No, it's Um, a long film. (laughs) It's a long film. But it's not that long a film, actually. About two and a half hours. It's it's long, but it's not crazy, crazy long. Yeah. Um, I did... Yeah, I, I appreciate that it obviously has astonishing beauty. I think I never felt involved or perhaps partly because I wasn't, I didn't have that intrigue of thinking, oh, what's the plot is going to be about? What's happening? I had a sense of, well, obviously I'd watched it before. Yeah. Um, and even before watching it, I had a sense of what was happening, you know, what what it was about, just because it's such a well-known film. I think enough of information, sort of spoilers, had felt, yeah. you know, it got through to me. Um, and so without that curiosity, um, I, I just didn't care and yeah. I didn't care and I couldn't care about, um, the, the, the characters. Well, I, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's, and never that's one a, of the things you said. Thing. That's yeah. just not, yeah. Not I mean, I, maybe to say a bit about that and, um, I mean, and actually just before I do, maybe we should. Maybe because this is a podcast about films we love, we shouldn't focus too much on why you didn't like it. No. Because, uh, because um, you know, if people are listening to this, and uh, probably they're listening to it because they they like it as a film. So, True. Yeah, I'm just I'm just conscious of the fact that you don't want to 
you don't want to sort of kill someone else's enjoyment of it. In some ways, no, do you? Yeah. I really don't. And yeah. I don't. And I, I mean, the other thing is, is that when you watch something, especially something which is an extremely uh, something I'm sure we talk about is very arty film. It's very a difficult film. Then um, you, you always have in the mind, maybe I'm just there's something lacking in me, something about me that isn't, you know, isn't getting it. That, um, and that could just be true. But but I, I really wouldn't say that for this film because you know, like I say, it. I was completely bewildered by it the first time I saw it, and pretty much the second time I saw it, and it actually took a reading of the novel for me to yeah. fully enjoy it. I so think. tell yeah. me more about that. Tell me about what the novel. Um, so the, I mean the the novel really is the it's the explanation of the Stargate the big sort of psychedelic bit that's um, yeah that Dave's going through at the end and then the room that he ends up in mm. and so you know not to sort of go into it too much but like you were saying the the main storyline really is that the monolith is a has been put on Earth in in the time of the apes by a future civilization who are no longer in any kind of material form. They're only in light form form mm. now. And so they put this one down on Earth in whatever year that was with the apes. Another one that they bury in the moon in yeah. the year, well, I guess it's 2000 or something, because it's 2001 when they go to Jupiter, isn't it, 18 months later? Um, and then... Um, this third one that's out near Jupiter, which, and it's all supposed to be, supposed to be, well, man will only be given this knowledge when he develops the technology enough to move to this new location where the next monolith is located. So, yeah. so to start with, you know, the apes are on the, on the earth so they can gain that knowledge, but the next one's on the moon. So not until mankind develops the technologies get to the moon do we feel that he'll be intellectually ready enough to receive the next lot of information yeah which will be something yes. about the new location out in Ju- i mean the, new, the, the third model of these you know it's not even on jupiter is it? it's just floating in space is yeah. that we see it okay yeah but that'll be and we never really find out exactly i can't uh, how they get the location of the third the third model obviously that's part of the information that's given to them in the second one yeah and then the Stargate and the room at the end of the film is this is now Dave Bowman. They're trying the the um, you know the vastly superior intelligence is trying to get Dave Bowman into a state where he's ready to receive the next lot of knowledge from them, which is the knowledge that he's going to take back to Earth about how to emancipate the human race, essentially. From this, okay. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to go. Yep, yep. Yeah, yep. and 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 one, of them, and one of just one more bit about it is that the so the rooms at the end is basically, um, it is the, um, the intelligence trying to build some kind of um, location for him that he's familiar with to sort of like bring his mind back in back to some level where he can feel sane enough again to accept the information he's getting. So. He, you know, all the scenes we see of him getting older, he's there for a very long time, you know, getting older, but he's just being kept there in a room that he feels comfortable and familiar in, basically. Okay. Yeah, rather than just being in a Stargate, which blows his mind, like, you know, and yeah, sends him yeah. insane. Yeah. So they're basically having to bring him back to sanity in order to... 
And that's my memory of that. I mean, I obviously read the novel a long time ago, but that's my memory of it. And that's the sort yes. of memory I take when I'm watching the film again. Yeah. Okay. I yeah. mean, I, yeah, I didn't immediately get that, but that's, that's, I could, I mean, I was along those tracks. Yeah, I think, yeah. You, I think you could I just, think you from, get the sense of that. that you? It yeah. feels, you obviously know that there's something wonderful about the final, although he seems an old, wrinkled old man. There's something wonderful that happens that this great baby that's coming, like, kind of weird baby yeah. creature. It is stylistically beautiful. Um, so not not to dwell on things I didn't like, but what just to say about why you still love the film because this is a film where we don't we don't get drawn in or have have uh, like sympathy for for the main character, yeah. any characters really. So what is it? How why is it that that didn't bother you? Because that's often something you'd say is a really important thing in a film that you care for the protagonist or you care for whatever. Why why not in this one? I think, I think Stanley Kubrick films just don't require that somehow. I mean, it, it's it's like I'd say, like in Eyes Wide Shut with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Like, I have a feeling that Stanley Kubrick chose them as actors because, partly because they're not that good at, as actors. Mm. Like, it's almost like he wants the acting to be slightly banal in order to allow the full reach of his visual art i think like like i would say um like in like in this in 2001 like the dialogue is so banal really isn't it like mm. it, it's all sort of like company dialogue isn't it it's all sort of mm. like people saying hello and being polite to each other and then doing little speeches in front of a none of it has any interest whatsoever i mean little tiny bits of it move the plot on a little mm. bit but we could almost have done without all of it pretty much yeah well yeah and, yeah and and the, none of the characters are memorable, like the the mayor, you know, uh, Hayward Hayward Floyd. Oh, hang on, I've got the name of see, hey, the Hayward Floyd, isn't it? The main guy who goes up to start with to give the speech. Yeah, yeah. So he's the one on the moon, the on moon, the moon section. Yeah. He's a completely forgettable character. Yes. Um, even Dave Bowman, the main sort of main one of the two, is pretty forgettable, really, isn't he? Yeah, really? there's a yeah. little bit because he's got a little bit of yeah. a struggle. He does have a. Uh, um, an there arc is, of a kind. Yeah, yeah, and there is still. I mean, there's a great tension with um, between him and Hal. Yeah, I did really like that. I loved that portrayal of a of the, you know an artificial intelligence and just representing him through that red dot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's just astonishing how emotional that red dot. Well, yes. Well, emotional, just how how much of a being it appeared, how much of a character in the film. Do you film remember that was. on the IMAX screen where it just showed the big red dot on the IMAX screen? <laughs> yeah. It was like, and then you get computer malfunction and big flashing yeah. red. That was quite something, I thought. It's yeah. quite painful. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then I, they, apparently they did think about using a, a sort of humanoid robot at one time for, uh, for mm. and Stanley Kubrick thought mm, it'll be too... It just won't be the same. It's much better being just a robot. Oh, dot. definitely. Yeah. And we've had some other other films that have used humanoid robots that have yeah. gone wrong. Um, like in, I don't know, Alien is the obvious obvious one. Yes. Um, which is quite a good reveal that there's, you know, he isn't human. He's an android. Yeah. Um, Apparently they've got Douglas Rain, who does the voice of um, how to... Um, just lie down with his feet in big fluffy pillows to calm him down as much as possible so he could play a really calm hell voice. <laughs> oh, Dave. Yeah. You can't do yeah. that, Dave. But yeah, so so you're saying, well, why why don't these films, why don't you feel the absence of character in, in these yeah. films? 
And I just think it's just just not what these films are about. These films are about um, about visual storytelling. I mean, it very much reminds me of when we were talking about Under the Skin, and you know we you, you know that the guy who plays Motorcycle Man Under the Skin is not a not an not a um, you know a professional actor, as was mm. the guy who owned the house who Scarlett Johansson mm. ends up trying to sleep with. And Stanley Kubrick, I think he, he just doesn't want actors really. He wants to. No, I think he wants some furniture that, for yeah. his for his amazing visuals. And yeah. I, I've certainly, um, I don't, it's not like I disliked Stanley Kubrick generally, actually. Yeah. And I really, I, I really loved Barry Lyndon, and I would mind watching that again. And yeah. that's a film, which is almost just a series of visuals that are well, astonishingly just, beautiful. It's funny. Barry Lyndon is just. Sort of him trying to recreate all those paintings, basically, isn't it? That's, yeah. that's his sort of guiding, in a way, guiding mission really for making that film. I think, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, Barry Lyndon has slightly, um, was it Ryan O'Neill, isn't it? Plays the main character in, in Barry Lyndon. Yeah, plays Barry Lyndon. There's slightly more emotional um, sympathy for Barry yeah. Lyndon in that film, isn't there? There is yeah. emotional sympathy for him. I think most other films there is some more emotionality. Um, yeah. I did. I was just in a kind of plaintive way trying to um, defend my thinking, as you do. So yeah. obviously you go on to Google and say, well, why, "Why don't I like this?" Yeah. But I did. I found a couple of people talking about it in um, in a way that I thought, "Yeah, that pins down my thoughts." Um, apparently, at the time, somebody in the New York Times reviewed it and said it was somewhere between hypnotic and immensely boring yeah and I thought that did capture it really because there yeah. were times where I was hypnotized and then and times where I wasn't um and as somebody else said I think it was in some spectrum.com just a kind of discussion about film and they said that they felt that Stanley Kubrick had set out to make a film that was detached from humanity and emotion um which maybe was the case, but there was so, they were using yeah. that in a totally pejorative sense um, to, to, to defend their dislike of the film, really. Do you think but, it's fair to say, like, um, and, and I mean, we know that when this film came out, you know, it came out in the in the era of LSD. I mean, I'm sure Stanley Kubrick mm. wasn't really that wasn't his intention with it, really, but you know, it, it's known that a lot of people went to, went to watch this film taking take yes. acid. Do you think know, it seems like um, slightly analogous to? You know, it's always been said by Timothy Leary and other people that it's very important when you take psychedelic drugs about the set and the setting. And I think by watching this film in the same way, the set and the setting are very important for, you know, you need, you need to be in a place that's a meditative state. You somehow need to not be disturbed. You mm. need to have people around you who are in the same frame of mind as you. You know, mm. it'd be the same, you know, imagine someone, if someone's taking psychedelics and someone's in a complete someone's drinking and getting really drunk in mm, there okay, that would mm. be awful for them so maybe just coincidentally this turns out to be a film that which you can apply the sort of safety guidelines of taking psychedelics to as well it's true and i suppose when i was watching it last night i was watching it not exactly under duress but because i was you know i was watching it with the purpose of um recording we're this, doing this yeah also not with a kind of sense that I it wasn't my favorite film and it was one of your yeah. favorite films, which brings us on to the next question, I guess. Yes. Way. Because as we often say about all our films, um, we say is this a girlfriend or boyfriend test film? Meaning, 
if you were in a you know starting a relationship with somebody um would you want them to would this be a good test of if you're going to like them or not whether they like this film uh, a definitive no it. for this one. Are you sure you're not just saying? <laughs> and not just because you've said you. you so by my memory, it. by the time I saw it, I was already pregnant with your child. <laughs> so about not being there, really, was yeah. it? Yeah. Um, no, and and for the same reasons as um, I said, that under the skin certainly wouldn't wouldn't be a a test of whether you think you could really get on with someone in a relationship because. And it seems to be for the same reasons somehow in that, um, you know, my reasons for liking this film of 2001 and Under the Skin are very different reasons from why I liked lots of other films in this series like Lost in Translation or Dead Poets Society or the Before Trilogy or things like that. Mm. Because it's about the visual art in the, in these films and the and the mind expanding ideas and they're not for everyone really. And, and I wouldn't have, and it's not, I, you know, it's not, I don't see any reason why you can't, you know, you can get on perfectly well with someone if they don't share those kind of aesthetics with you. Whereas some of the likings for the other films, you feel like it's more and more emotional. These are less emotional films, aren't they? 2001 is a less emotional film. Yeah. Definitely less emotional. Um, so it's more a question of aesthetics rather than, um, values. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we have to think about what we mean by aesthetics, and we're not. Which is this? Is this aesthetics just the just visual aesthetics here? Like, does it or does aesthetics mm. encompass? Um, we're really going to the art section already here, now, aren't we? Yeah, yes. I mean, um, I guess we are. Yeah, let's let's that, jump let's in. Li- there let's as leave well. that. Yeah. Well, no, no, let's just go in and yeah. then okay. go yeah. to say, you know, as we we often say, is is a film art. Yeah, which is this again a bit like under the skin. It's it's a glaring media a star, a star for one type of art, um, but not um, not a type not a type of art that we've been talking about for other films. I mean, because of our wonderfully loose definition of what is art. Do you want to summarise where we've kind of got to with our definition okay, of art so far? Okay, where have we got to? Yeah. So. Um, art is sometimes it's showing us something about our own lives. Yeah. Um, art is sometimes um, just showing a, a, a beautiful image or, or, or thing. Art is sometimes teaching us something about another way of being, maybe a, a, an idealised way of being. Yeah. Um, you, ca- you mentioned the um, Alan Botton School of Life. Um, the, which was its propaganda for how you want life to be. Yes. Yeah. So I, I like that definition much. of it. Yeah. Um, also, no, other thoughts about again. I think it's about life, but being something that's very close to nature and something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we can we can add to those definitions as much as you. Like. Well, I don't think I don't think two thousand one adds anything to that. Really, this is very much in the visual aesthetics side of I mean it is um, also art, it, it still yeah. is a sci-fi a, a hard sci-fi film as well which is I find sci- sci-fi has suffered a lot as um as a genre is often not considered art is yeah. it? especially novels sci-fi novels really kind of find it hard to be sort of taken seriously um but I do think they uh, can express ideas like the ideas as you discussed about you know mankind evolution things like that which 
surely those kind of ideas are do they not sort of have any right to be discussed as, as art so you know even a more pedestrian less beautiful version of this film but we still had the same core ideas and concepts of um sort of the the evolution of of mankind humans what you mean it doesn't have to be in a sci-fi film for them to be discussed no 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 i mean as a sci-fi film yeah. so a sci-fi film can a sci-fi film be art using thinking about those concepts does that does that aspect of this film add anything to to, it, to its artistic nature is it just purely down to these beautiful no i think it i think it does i mean there, there we're talking about um that intellectual ideas can also be an element of art i guess aren't we like i mean i find i find you know when i like i was saying earlier when i found out what it was that Kubrick and, and, and Arthur C. Clarke were trying to say with the the idea of the transmission of knowledge by a vastly superior light light being race. I mean that really my mind I felt a mind expanding moment mm. from that. And I think I think feeling mind expanding moments when either watching or listening to or however you're con consuming art that would seem to be an element of art somehow, wouldn't it? That's um, like if you you listen to a piece of music and you feel you're hearing a form of music that you've never heard before, but that really transfixes you. That's that's a sort of a, an equivalent to mind expanding in a way. I think, wouldn't it? Yeah. So here we're just talking about an intellectual and an, an idea yes. that expands your mind. But that can still be. Would you would you think that can still be a part of art? Yeah. 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 We don't normally associate intellectual ideas with art, do we? We sort of think of them in a slightly different realm, do you think? Oh, no, I suppose li literature. Literature, yeah. we often think of... Surely that's, ideas. you know, some yeah. great literature that are trying to get across um, philosophical ideas. Um, I was sort of thinking about like A.S. Byatt and Possession, yeah. which is trying to get across um, lots of ideas and discussions and... Um, about policy, you know, politics at the time of the, you know, yeah. about sixties and and censorship, and and yet trying to create a fictionalized version rather than being some kind of, you know, document that's just yeah detailing a historical view of it. Yes, I suppose actually, maybe um, of course, art is about ideas, but I'm I'm thinking it doesn't happen that often in film, does it? Really, it's, you don't get big intellectual ideas in, or maybe maybe in. You might say in uh, Terence Malick's The Tree of Life, you might think of that as being a sort of parallel 2000, wouldn't you? That yeah. he was trying to tell you something about man and... and In fact, Terence Malick films in general sort of try and do that. I mean, another fake film of ours, The Thin Red Line, is very much about what is the glory in life, isn't what is, it? What, what do you... Yes. Yeah, and yeah. that's one of the lines in it, isn't it? And that is very much a sort of an idea about man's purpose and man's intense yeah. yeah 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 big ideas and surely people have had religious i mean sometimes badly done but they've talked about religious ideas have come through in the film as well can you give an example of that or? Uh, i don't know religious <laughs> ones. all the ones that australian mad max guy does oh uh, mel gibson yes well those are films about christian That's... stories but would are they trying to explicitly give ideas of religious experiences is that what you're I, actually I don't know yeah I don't really go to religious films but I'm imagining that they do that's what they, yes 
you know, passion, so, uh, so again, big ideas that they're trying yeah. to put across rather than, yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay, so in different order from normal, but maybe this works anyway, but would you say anything in the even better if category? Well, not so much in that there's things I'd like to change about the film. film. Just about the people that you watch the film with? <laughs> no, no, okay. no, I wouldn't change that about the people I watch the film with. But I think it's interesting how my impression of the film has changed with the more knowledge I have of Stanley Kubrick as a person mm. over time and I'm, I'm I don't I'm still trying to work out what this is exactly but so the first few times I've watched this film I didn't really know much about Stanley Kubrick and I think probably since the time in my 20s when I watched it I've read biographies of him like I said I've watch documentaries about him particularly one about the making of the shining made by his his daughter at the time um i think probably his still daughter you, yes. say, you say like his wife at the time <laughs> yeah yeah but no, no it's still his daughter yes yeah, sorry still his daughter <laughs> and then like i said i went to see the, the stanley Kubrick exhibition last year and the overriding impression you get apart from his incredible organization skills and his you know fantastic sort of imagination and and drive for creating what to do is that he was really a bit of a git as far as like the way he treated his actors the way he treated his crew I mean I'd say he's was almost certainly you know had some was on some kind of spectrum that made him lack empathy for the people he was working with Mm. and I mean we we've had conversations before about you know do you separate the art and the artist and really I can't see any reason as to why 2001 should feel in any way diminished in my eyes because of now what I know about Stanley Kubrick I'm not even particularly making 2001 but in him making other films you know my knowledge of him making 2001 isn't isn't that great apart from that he he sent some poor um, low-level production person to take endless photos of African planes, you know, the ones it used at the beginning in the um, in the ape oh, scenes. Oh, uh, right, yes. Which I think, he, I think this poor guy did for about a year or something. <laughs> like, he just wasn't happy for a very oh, long okay. time. Sounds so, quite nice. But, but... Yeah, yes. But, um, so, I mean, yeah. that's certainly a problem when you know about something. Uh, I found it a little bit difficult watching The Shining and knowing how badly sort of bullied, really, Shelley yeah, Shelley Duvall. Duvall was. Yeah. And that just, well, for one thing, it just takes you out of the film. Um, yes, I mean, I, I mean. So another thing that I do know about two thousand one is that um, he, you know, did you see in the credits at the end it said um, special effects devised, created, and directed by Stanley Kubrick, mm-hmm. and lots of the other people who worked with them had a little, little to say about that. I think he won an <laughs> Oscar for it in the end, and um, and they didn't think that it was really just about him. Yeah, yes. okay. So I mean, you, special effects are rarely devised, created and done by one yes. person. As yeah, but there was a very work. obvious credit to him at the yeah. end there. It wasn't just direct, you know, it said special effects done by Stanley Kubrick yeah. kind of thing. So yeah. it's a little bit of an ego. Yeah. But yes. it is yeah, a huge question, isn't it? Dividing the artist from his yeah. work. I must say when I was watching it last night, I, that wasn't sort of uppermost in my mind. It's just... It's just I think I'm more affected by it nowadays at how I feel about the um, the way that something was created as much as what has been created. Like I remember we were saying when we were watching 
when we were reviewing Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind in that I got a lot of additional pleasure and liking for that film because of I know just what a, a sort of soft-hearted uh, and improvisational and spontaneous and what a giddy kind of person that Michelle mm. Gondry is and how that fed in sort of fed into the um, what you see as the final film and somehow here when I'm watching watching two thousand one sort of for the you know the the latest time. I'm almost thinking, yeah, it's almost Kubrick's coldness which has made it like this. Make a film detached from humanity and emotion. Yes, yes. But I'm, I'm, I'm still a bit confused as to what whether that actually changes my enjoyment of it or not. Mm-hmm. I don't think it does that much. But I, 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 the fact that it's even in my mind when I'm watching it now is, is an interesting, interesting yeah. fact, I think. Yeah. How did you think, uh, because the film is looks amazing, has this vision of the future and of course we're well we're, we're well past the point where it you know was set yeah um and in some aspects we realize it's it's uh it went wrong you know as, as all visions of the future will do did that does that spoil things at all for you or how do you feel that even adds a kind of strange um period charm well you mean the fact that we're not going to the moon and, and we're going to the yeah. moon there's a like there's a big gender thing going on isn't there it's yes. like there's been no progress in gender roles in well their world. i do, i was looking for that actually i was thinking in the in the meeting that hayward floyd has up on the moon with the yeah the few, I think there was all... two women i, I think there? i counted okay. there yeah, yeah i think i only saw one and there was a couple was the russian in the, with the russian yeah yeah but yeah, you got the feeling that really no women had got into positions of power, you? and and all the the women, the the sort of Pan Am's uh, outfit as well. Yes, I quite liked. It was very much of its time, of course. But... I mean, but you have to think, nineteen sixty-eight. I mean, that this is like, yeah, you hadn't really had much of women's liberation at all. A modern women's liberation had you like what Not happened in the seventies at that point? Sure, yeah, and of all people. I imagine Stanley Kubrick was probably even less aware than your average man yeah. of, the, of that kind of yeah, that kind of thing. So, but actually, as far as like a vision of the future goes, disregarding the sort of like the gender roles, I, I, I think it stands up quite well, really. To be honest, I mean the the thing that always gets me in um, older films about um, space technology is the screens. The screens are so so. Low resolution, yeah. when they were, but I mean, but they have to because that's the best that's you they've got, do. Yeah. you know. So, I, yeah. yeah, I mean, it could have been, but, like, but yeah. Yeah. things like that, just some of the shots when he's uh, so it's the screens that are reflected on the helmet, yeah. Suddenly, it looks like that could be at any stage, it looks incredibly modern, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. which is pretty, pretty impressive stuff, yes. Okay, yeah, anything more to add to your? I don't think I do, I mean. It's curious that this is probably the the one film in this list that one of us has chosen and the other one hasn't really liked, isn't it? I think of all mm. the other films we have in, in this series, we both, it might be chosen by one of us, but the other one pretty much really likes it as well. Yeah. Which makes an interesting, uh, different sort of discussion in some ways, doesn't it? So is it. Mm. And, and I have to say, I think probably if I watch this a couple more times, it would probably drop out of my favourite film list. Oh, well, I'm yeah. sorry. No, 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 no. I don't think it, I don't even think it would be from watching with you. But I think, you know, your 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 favourite film 
list it mutates doesn't it it doesn't say set in stone well there's that too yeah it's an interesting thing what makes your favorite film yeah but i i would i i'm also reluctant to have it drop out because i think it's such a a staggeringly a staggering achievement as a work of art really particularly for the year in which it's made which i don't think it necessarily should count for anything in our in our favorite films you know the year uh, year in which it was made but it is certainly a very impressive achievement nonetheless yeah okay okay good stuff so i think that just about does doesn't it so um if you have anything you'd like to say about the podcast, maybe you can tell us whether you love or hate the film. <laughs> <laughs> See how many votes you get either way. Um, you can email us at uh, inbedwith at ethancrane.com. That's C-R-A-N-E. Or if you go on to the website, ethancrane.com, uh, there's a web page for each of these podcasts and you can leave us a comment there. And otherwise, we shall see you for the next film. Bye. Bye.